Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Good day and a very warm welcome to our listeners. I'm your host, Sarah McKenzie, a partner in Weber Wenzel's dispute resolution practice. The African Continental Free Trade Area aims to increase intra-African trade and transform the economies on the African continent. With trade comes investment, and the first question that investors should be asking when taking the plunge and committing to an investment in a foreign state is how that investment will be treated. Today, we will be discussing the investment protection regime under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, what we can anticipate in the protocol that's currently being negotiated, and the importance of this document for intra-African investments. The protocol is, of course, a significant document that's likely to be the subject of intensive negotiations. And to help me unpack the developments in relation to it, I will be joined by Vlad Moshevich, Babatunde Fagbohunlu, and Roland Ziade. Roland, Tunde, Vlad, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Vlad, we know that the investment protocol is seen as a critical component of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Could you please explain where it fits into the arrangement for us and contextualize where the state parties are in relation to finalizing it? Yes, thank you very much, Sarah. So the the AFC-FTA is obviously a very ambitious uh, instrument. It seeks to create a single continental market for goods and services with free movement of business persons and investment and expand intra-African trade. Uh, in phase one of the uh, of the AFCFTA, the parties are seeking to establish the free uh, free trade of goods and services. Phase two moves uh, the focus moves uh, onto FDI and uh, investment intra African investment, the investment between the different African countries. The process now moves on to phase two. In phase two, uh, a critical component, obviously, of uh, intra-African uh, trade investment is an investment protocol which seeks to protect the uh, the rights and uh, and uh, seeks to impose obligations on investors within African uh, African context. The whole purpose of it is to ensure that more intra-African trade. Uh, takes place by direct foreign investment. That process is still ongoing. Fortunately, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has uh, put a halt on a lot of the negotiations. It was meant to take place in 2020. It's now hoped to take place by 2022. And uh, the critical components of that process are going to be ensuring that there are sufficient investor protections with, uh, at the same time, uh, adequate uh, responsibilities imposed on investors and to ensure that there's balance in uh, meeting the sustainable development goals set by the African Union 2063 agenda. The African Union ministers in charge of integration in 2008 mandated various African Union committees to come up with a comprehensive code on investment. 
that investment code took shape over many years. And of course, we know that from about 2007, 2008, doubts started emerging over the investment protection regime, which subsisted in the Western world and was seen to be imposed on developing countries. What we've seen is that the Pan-African Investment Code, which ultimately emerged from that process of discussing integration, is quite an, uh, an interesting and balanced document. So on the one hand, the Pan-African Investment Code protects investments, but then defines investment in a very narrow way to be confined essentially to certain business entities. In a similar way, it offers a range of substantive protections like uh, most favored nation and national treatment protection and expropriation protection, transfer of funds, uh, security of transfer of funds, but then has various uh, public interest and regulatory measure carve-outs to ensure that the political space for the various African countries is maintained. And so it's, it's, uh, it seeks to maintain uh, or to establish that balance between, on the one hand, the need for protection of investors, and on the other, the need for, for an increased policy space. Thanks, Vlad. That's a thorough explanation of, of what the code covers. Can you possibly comment on, on what you think is likely to be inserted from that content into the phase two negotiations and the investment protection protocol? At the moment, it's a little bit uh, uncertain because the negotiations have stalled. But what's expected is um, uh, having regard to the purpose of phase two, which is to improve intra-African investment and to encourage private investors throughout the African continent to invest in other African countries. Uh, there will be substantive protections for investment, for intra-African investment. That's a very important component. But also investment protection that's tempered by the need for the states to regulate their, their own social development processes. And all of this in the new investment code, of course, it's, a, it's quite a finely balanced um, exercise and one would need to see to what extent the imposition of any obligations on investors uh, will make it to the final investment code because that might dissuade rather than persuade investors uh, to invest in, in other African states. So the investment code may be the starting point for the negotiations essentially. I think that's the expectation. Okay. And Tunde, how do these protections that Vlad has run us through stack up when compared to investment protections in other regional arrangements on the continent? Uh, thank you, Sarah. I, I think um, to, to a very large extent, you see pretty much the similar protections that you have in other uh, bilateral and multilateral instruments. So there is protection. They are your typical uh, relative uh, protections, the most favored nation, the national treatment you, you also find your absolute uh, protections, uh, um, uh, the, the right to freely transfer uh, income abroad, um, the protection from, um, you know, uh, the, the other protections that you typically find that are, that are absolute, no expropriation without compensation. Uh, but although those um, protections are there, they are moderated by the balance that Vlad referred to just now, 
which is uh, the desire of African states to rebalance the dynamics uh, in terms of the configuration of rights and obligations. So what, what I could do is to illustrate with one or two examples how you see the protections that you find in typical multilateral and bilateral treaties uh, being moderated by that uh, policy. Uh, and that policy obviously is quite, quite apparent from the provisions of the Pan-African Investment Code. So for example, the, the PIC does not accord most favored nation treatment uh, to pre-establishment uh, uh, investments, to the pre-establishment stage of investments. It only accords that uh, protection to the post-establishment stage of the investment, which contrasts with what you would find in uh, 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 model BITs inspired by exports, uh, capital exporting countries like the USA. Perhaps one of the significant deviations from uh, from from global standards that you would find in the PIC, uh, and which again is inspired by the desire to rebalance the uh, in relations between investor states, is the way expropriation uh, is treated. Uh, so there is protection. Uh, uh, there's definitely protection in the sense that you have the typical standards that are applicable, namely um, it must be for a public purpose, It must uh, uh, there must be compensation, but the way compensation is treated uh, is significant. Uh, and, and again, it's inspired by a number of instruments you'd find uh, across the African region. So uh, it's not the, 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 the standard of fair market value which is what you'd find in, say, for instance, the UK model BIT or the USA model BIT, uh, is moderated by further uh, equitable considerations. So the PAIC, for instance, uh, requires that uh, wh while you take the fair market value as a baseline for determining compensation, you must also have regards to all relevant circumstances uh, to achieve equitable balance between the public interest and the interest of others who may be affected. I guess probably the most significant point is uh, is to say, well, you will not find fair and equitable treatment in the PAIC. And that's probably something that the negotiators of the, uh, during the phase two process must, um, must think carefully about. I know that particular standard of protection, fair and equitable treatment, has come under much criticism in the sense that it's rather open-ended. And in natural fact, it tends to be the protection that generates uh, investor claims uh, in, in investment tribunals the most. But um, perhaps the negotiators can borrow a leaf from the SADC model uh, BIT, which uh, which replaces fair and equitable treatment with fair administrative treatment. Uh, so obviously there shouldn't be a complete abandonment of <clears throat> the fair treatment standard, but it could be moderated just like the SADC uh, regime has done. Thanks, Tunde. So is it fair to summarize what you've said as being that although there are um, potentially some um, some deviations from what we we see in in some global standards of investment treaties um, and and in some cases um, a tightening of of the protections in the sense that they may be um, less open-ended that um, this might be um, inevitable in in the protocol when it's eventually fi finalized um, because of the policy reasons informing some of the concerns around um, the the traditional standards of investment protection. So that's 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 a that's a very good summary. 
uh, I couldn't have put it better myself. Great. Thanks, Tunde. Roland, what is the anticipated effect of the protocol on existing investment treaties between African states? Will existing treaties continue to govern intra-African investments, or will the new protocol supersede the provisions of those treaties? Uh, Sarah, let me first maybe remind our audience, and that was already mentioned by Vlad, that the draft investment protocol is currently being negotiated and has not been published yet. Uh, therefore, no specific information is available at the moment as to its exact scope or its relationship with other investment agreements. I think it's also important to note there are currently about 190 intra-African bilateral investment treaties and international investment agreements, although many of them have not yet entered into force. As we speak, it is unclear whether the investment protocol will coexist with other intra-African investment agreement or will replace them and supersede them. Both approaches are in principle conceivable and this discussion, I have to say, is not new. It also took place during the negotiation of the Pan-African Investment Code, but the code was only adopted, as we know, as a guiding instrument, and no final or at least conclusive decision was made regarding its relationship with other investment agreements. A possible approach would be for the investment protocol to eventually replace the existing intra-African BITs in order to streamline the framework of investment protection in the continent. But this would obviously require significant political commitment. In this scenario, the protocol could, for instance, specify that once it's entered into force, the relevant intra-African BITs will cease to apply and will be replaced by the protocol. We have seen this type of provision, for instance, in the free trade agreement that the EU has concluded with third parties, such as Vietnam or Canada. But there are also examples of possible coexistence with other agreements, which was the approach adopted by the Comisa Common Investment Area. As we speak, it remains to be seen what the precise relationship will be between the protocol and other African Regional Investment Agreement or intra-African BITs. And let's at least hope that the protocol will clearly set out the nature of such relationship to avoid, I would say, unwelcome uncertainties, debates, or even litigation on this issue. So that's likely to be a critical point of the negotiations then. Um, we know that the free trade area is about intra-African trade, but is there likely to be any impact on investment protection commitments in relation to investments into Africa from non-African states? We need to maybe first to keep in mind that today the vast majority of foreign direct investments into African countries, the so-called FDIs, come from outside Africa. And it is indeed important to clarify how the protocol might impact the protection of such investment. As you know, Sarah, the protocol on investment will only apply to intra-African investment. As for investment flows with the rest of the world, these are protected by an array of over, I would say, 750 BITs and other international investment agreements. These agreements are thus not expected to be affected by the investment protocol. In fact, non-African investors may even benefit indirectly from the protocol through what 
we called the most favored nation clauses often included in investment treaties entered into by African state with third party states. But even if the protocol does not directly impact investors from outside Africa, in the long term, it may be used as a model for future treaties with countries outside Africa. And this indeed might have an impact on the overall nature and level of protection of investments into Africa. Great, very interesting. And Tunde, the question around whether investment treaties should contain a direct investor-state dispute settlement mechanism has become very controversial in recent years. What does the investment code contemplate in relation to the enforcement of the substantive standards we've discussed? Um, and do you anticipate that the protocol will be crafted similarly? It's it's difficult to imagine right now how, how that's going to shape up eventually, given the uh, controversy around uh, investors to dispute settlement. As you would know, it's, it's formed the subject of a lot of activity at Oncitral's Working Group 3, uh, which, is, which is looking to see how uh, ISDS may be reformed with proposals for setting up, for instance, a multilateral, uh, a, a, a single multilateral uh, investment court uh, globally. Uh, now, um, the, the Pan-African Investment Code uh, uh, adopts a process where, first of all, it's for the individual states to determine in accordance with their local policy whether they will do investor-state dispute settlement or not. So ISDS is not mandatory. Uh, each, each, each member state is given the freedom to determine if it will do ISDS or not. But if it does do ISDS, then what the Pan-African Investment Code provides for is some sort of, um, I, would, I would call it almost ad hoc, a, a two-tier ad hoc arbitral process. You, you, uh, you, in the first tier, you, you try to settle by negotiation or consultation. And then, and after that, if that does not succeed, you have uh, arbitration under Uncitral's rules, which is why I call it somewhat ad hoc. I guess the other significant aspect of the dispute uh, process uh, under the PAIC is that you now have, for the first time, the concept of justiciable investor obligations and the possibility of state counterclaims, which addresses um, you know, one of the criticisms that have been leveled against um, uh, the current uh, ISDS framework from the perspective of developing, developing economies. I suspect that we are going to see... Uh, moderations of this provision in the investment protocol itself because the discussion is still ongoing and, and I suspect that several disparate views about what the shape of dispute settlement should look like under the uh, protocol would have influence in shaping its ultimate outcome. And Vlad, another hot topic that we've alluded to, um, which has been particularly thorny among many African states, has been whether investment treaties leave sufficient scope for the exercise of regulatory or policy space. Is there a balance to be struck between protecting investors and ensuring that states are not overly constrained in their abilities to govern? Yes, it, this has been the subject matter of a lot of debate in recent years. And of course, has led to a number of uh, different uh, responses by states all over the world. Some of them have tried to resile from investment treaties altogether. Some of them have tried to modify their investment treaties to create some sort of a balance. Uh, some have extracted the dispute resolution between investors and states from 
uh, international arbitration, which they saw as favoring investors. So there are various, uh, many different responses. The the investment code, the Pan-African Investment Code, which we've been discussing, is an amalgam of uh, all sorts of thinking on these topics. But in essence, uh, uh, I think the new uh, protocol will have to be a finely balanced document that's fit for purpose. So it must be sufficient to attract investment and yet preserve the regulatory space. I don't think anyone is uh, nowadays doubting that there is a need to preserve that regulatory space. It's how you do it. And, uh, uh, and uh, of course, you must do it in a way that doesn't dissuade investment. What the trends that we see from the Pan-African Investment Codes are quite interesting, because um, on the one hand, it uh, the, the first tool that it uses is that it carves out of the various substantive protections certain exclusions. So those kinds of uh, balances are built into this investment code, and that's quite interesting. Uh, the the second aspect uh, that that uh, the code tries to do is to set out the investor responsibilities, which we've touched on earlier. And then the third tool that the code uses is various uh, regulatory injunctions to uh, given to the state. So, so effectively mandating the uh, the African states to take measures within particular. Uh, spheres of activity. So, so those are the kinds of tools that it uses. How many of them will uh, we'll see in the protocol uh, in the AFC FTA protocol is difficult to to gauge, as Roland has said. But it is it is a very interesting process, and ultimately, it's striking a balance where you don't uh, uh, you don't repel investors. Uh, away with too many responsibilities or too many restrictions on their activities. Well, I think what's been very clear from what all of you have said is that there are a number of points that may be highly contentious in the phase two negotiations around the investment protocol. Roland, do you think that some of the more contentious provisions may be watered down or left out of the final protocol entirely? How do you see the final negotiation process playing out? To be frank, Sarah, <laughs> I do not have a crystal ball and I would rather not speculate. Uh, it will certainly be a lengthy and very complex process, especially taking into account the current significant debates on the continent. And I have to say beyond regarding investment protection and the negotiation, as you know, are taking place against the backdrop of a very large network of intra-African investment protection agreements. Many of these are being modernized in line with the new trends, such as we mentioned, and Vlad has mentioned, the enhancement of the host state regulatory powers and a focus on sustainable development. But these efforts are mostly taking place, I would say, in a fragmented way, with each state seeking to update its own agreement, and the lack of a common and clearly defined aim will certainly add to the complexity of the negotiations. Now, on the other hand, this is also a great opportunity for African countries to harmonize their standards and principle of investment protection. As I've mentioned earlier, we have not yet seen a draft or even a provisional version of the protocol, so we don't really know what's been done so far. But if the Pan-African Investment Code is to serve as a guideline, as we've mentioned, one could imagine that African state will aim to redefine and narrow down the scope of investors and investment protected under the protocol, perhaps even linking such protection 
to whether those investments contribute to the sustainable development of the host states. We have already seen this approach in a number of agreements, including the 2012 model BIT of the Southern African Development Community and the recent Senegal-Turkey BIT. Some standard of protection will also likely be subject to considerable review, I would say. We already heard that the widely invoked and often controversial fair and equitable standard was not included in the Pan-African Investment Code. Other standards of protection like the most favored nation or the prohibition against unlawful expropriation are likely to be included, I would say, although probably with a substantial level of clarification when compared to traditional investment agreement. And maybe one final point mentioned already by Tunde and Vlad is what would be the mechanism for resolving disputes between investors and host states and whether the protocol will provide for ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, and if so, before which fora and under what conditions. The drafters may indeed choose to limit any use of ISDS, reflecting the lack of a common position on this point among various African states. To sum up, while there is a lot of uncertainty and speculation at this point, I expect that the upcoming investment protocol will reflect the latest debates and ongoing trends in investment treaty protection, both from a procedural and substantive perspective. What specific agreement or compromise will be achieved on each of the hot issues remains to be seen. One can hope that it will at least further improve the predictability, the consistency, and the legitimacy of the investment protection system on the continent and strike an appropriate balance between the facilitation of cross-border investment within Africa and the promotion of the sustainable development of the host states. Tunde, can you give us your final comment on the impact that this protocol is likely to have on Africa? Yes, I, I think um, it's. It, I think well, obviously the investment protocol. Uh, if it is gotten right, the, the balance that both Roland and Vlad have referred to, if it's gotten right, uh, will certainly have uh, a positive effect on the entire framework of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement itself. Uh, investments drive trade. Uh, that, that, that's a well-settled economic phenomenon. Um, the, the massive market that's going to come into existence as a result of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement will need a huge amount of investments to drive and and service that market. Um, obviously, if that market works well, uh, African countries will benefit sustainable development, poverty reduction, technology transfers, facilitating exports diversification, incorporating African companies into regional and global value chains, all these benefits will inure to African countries if the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement itself works. And, and it will work if it is driven by a very effective investment mechanism. The key, from my perspective, is going to be in ensuring that you come up with an arrangement that works and that it is faithfully implemented. Well, I think the takeaway from the discussions today should be that the negotiators will need to get the balance right. It's clear that developments in relation to the finalization of the protocol are something we should all be keeping a very close eye on. Thank you all for sharing your very valuable insights with us. 
That brings our discussion on the investment protection regime under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement to an end. I would like to thank Tunde, Roland and Vlad for sharing their insights and to thank our listeners for joining us. This has been Web Wenzel Legal Insights. Our executive producer is Yael Shafria. This was a volume production. I'm your host, Sarah McKenzie. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.